So if you were to introduce yourself, how would you introduce yourself? Well, you know, usually I put like on the emails, like a uh, Grammy winning drummer, educator, composer, author, author, let's not forget author. And, and that's another reason why I'm so glad to have you because I love the thinking musician. I'm going to just mention some of the musicians that I know that you've played with, who I've worked with in various ways, Lyle Mays, Eliana Elias, uh, Paquito de Rivera, John Patitucci. I mean, fabulous experiences to, to work with these people and fascinating in every way. But what I want to know is, from your point of view, which one of any of musicians that you worked with would you say that you've learned the most from and why? Well, it's a it's a tough one because uh, you know it's probably it's probably a toss up between Paquito, Lyle, and Ralph Towner. Wow, yeah, and of course all the guys in Oregon. Of course, but you know we learn little different things. But one thing that was in common with all of them is how important composition is, and I'm sure in your conversations with Lyle, you he talked about that. Yes. And as a matter of fact, he talked about the way he practices. He didn't say he never said he practiced. He practiced composition. Right. And so when I asked Ralph Towner, for example, how can I improve my solo and aeolus from the one record we did? Uh, and I wanted to, you know, get his input. He just said, play the composition. Right. So uh, and of course, Paquito de Rivera has been involved in just all facets of music from orchestral to straight up hardcore folkloric Latin yes. to everything in between bebop. So that's all about I mean, you know, that's it's all about improvisation, of course, but it's all about composition, too. And that really working with all of those people and the other people you mentioned, really kind of uh, set the course for my life, which is now studying composition, majoring in composition at UMass Amherst, right? So I'm, in the, I'm in the middle of a grad program. And it's Great. It's it's like it's an insane schedule. I mean, I don't even have time to do no, anything. Don't tell but... me about the schedule. <laughs> but what I what I love is the fact that you said improvisation and composition and of course the cliche that I I've heard since my Berkeley days is that improvisation is very fast composition and composition is very slow improvisation. So, I mean, it's really, I feel that you're expressing that they are the same thing and they always will be the same thing. And, and I do believe that when all those classical guys were writing their stuff, you know, they would sit down at the piano as Mozart did, you know, and, and they'd improvise and say, oh, that's cool, I'll write it down. So I, I don't think there's any difference between it, but the, the actual process, and, and I know you write arrangements for, you know, big band and all kinds of different ensembles. The process is different from sitting down at those funny things and striking them. So it's a pr different process, but it's the same thing. Right, right. You just don't have time to to uh, try anything else if you're if you're actually improvising, you just have to keep going with what you're doing. Or I mean, you can change the direction any time. But in composition, you can say, okay, how does this chord sound? How does that chord sound with this melody, for example? 
so you can go back and change it later or whatever but in improv it's it's what once it's done it's done it's there yeah yeah and and, and now you know all of these people who i've worked with and met throughout my life you know they i've always found that they give me something beyond music and so my question to you is going to be what musician would you say stands out as giving you some life lessons that comes from all over the place i mean for me it comes from just every single experience i've had with everybody the common thing with all those musicians when it's on it's on and there's a flow in the playing and it's uh you know lyle ralph and paquito they all make it look effortless yes and, uh, and there may be a mistake or something but you don't even notice <clears throat> it and maybe it's not a mistake they have that innate sense of music and actually uh since the pandemic i've been here i've been practicing yoga i've been playing solos recording solos and everything Right. And being back on the scene is different now somehow. It's there's something different about it than before. I don't know how to describe it, but there's, there's I agree. More of a, there's more of a peace. At least in my experience, I, yes. mean, I played just just played my own gig in Chicago and I, I felt like all I have to go do was just go. And the, and the band does the rest. That's you know right. I mean? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I felt this openness. Maybe they weren't necessarily trying to get me there but uh somehow the experience with them and to see how good it could be got me to this place i right, think that's right. how that's how life is it just unfolds and you get to a certain place and you realize wow wow how did we get here yeah yeah i mean in my case i just started to see the you know i was just taking walks i mean there was no, no gigs happening sure i was teaching online on zoom which was you know yeah is what it is but yeah. uh but just taking walks in the winter, I mean, all of a sudden I saw the sky, the winter sky for the first time, like, wow, how come I didn't notice that before? And right, how beautiful, exactly. how yeah, beautiful, yeah. all these different shades. It doesn't have to be a perfect sure. sunset. It can be different shades of gray or whatever. Sure. That just made you appreciate the space and the beauty. So that's, I don't know, something. Uh, I 100% I, I agree with that. And, and um, the thing I would like to talk to you about, you said you talked about teaching and mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you a kind of a provocative question and see how you uh, jump on it. Sure. Um, I, I think that, you know, of course, I do a lot of teaching myself and we've all been involved in that. But my question is, schools can teach music, but can schools teach musicians to be artists? Definitely, yes, depending on who's teaching. Because, uh, I mean, the people I'm studying with at UMass are incredible, and they're they're just at the top of their game, like uh, Dr. Felipe Salas and uh, Professor Jeff Holmes. Those guys are just so great at composition, and they know exactly what it takes to make it happen. And, uh, you know, we're all, we may all be inspired by different music, but... Uh, it's that spirit, it's that spark that unites us all in that. So we're all after that. Right. And uh, that may not be in the college catalog or the advertisements or or the <clears throat> endowments or whatever. Sure. But that's that that spark. I mean, at least in my view, that's right. why we that's why we all pay these kind of dues to do this, you know. 
I've seen from, you know, some of your interviews uh, that you're, as I said, a thinking guy. And um, it reminded me of something that Matheny said to me, which is that there are all these musicians coming out of music schools who have absolutely phenomenal technique, probably greater technique if you took the last five years of music students and judged their technique to 20, 30, 40 years ago, their technique level might be higher. But he his comment was that very few of them have actually something to say. And, and uh, I mean, obviously in my teaching, I do a lot of that side of it, not just teaching the music, but teaching not what, but why. And I noticed that one of the things I loved in one of your interviews where you talked about asking the question, what's the context of this music? We're playing all these different styles. And I and I loved that, that you were talking about, but they don't learn what's behind the styles, the culture. How do you teach that to your students? I first try to play them the music and give them an idea what it sounds like, and then try to fill in kind of a cultural context, context like what, for example, Afro-Cuban rumba, you know, uh, that's a folkloric music with drummers and dancers. And I talk about the, the interaction between the drummers and the dancers and the vocalists and how it's all based on the clave and uh, how it's been adapted to, to various contexts like jazz and Latin jazz, et cetera, et cetera. I try to let them experience the vibe of the music and try to give them the information so that they can recognize it, one, and then start to listen to it a lot repeatedly so they can absorb the feeling. Because mm. that's what I, I had to do that to learn how to play many, many styles that I play with Paquito. Yeah, so you play a lot of them. the same night, you know. <laughs> yeah, and you, and you play so many styles and you are obviously well-versed in each one and you can talk about the difference between this one and that one and, and all the details. But, but also I, I find that uh, a lot of times students don't know the the historical basis of those of those cultures and why that music came up that way whereas over here 50 miles away it came up something different and you find that i guess in latin american music a lot oh yeah oh yeah i was just talking with a colleague of mine at berkeley uh mike rinquist great percussionist who went down to cuba and studied and went down to brazil and studied and I asked him about uh, like uh, Afro-Cuban 6-8 music, bembe, there's different names for it. So the common bell pattern is And I said, well, what about the other parts? He said, well, in Santiago, they play it this way, in Havana, they play it that way. And then, you know, a bunch of different places, they, they played it differently. But the common thing was the cowbell pattern. Right. So I try to look for common things and then if I can get the information on how they played it in this neighborhood. I mean, you know, I'm in many, many styles. I think I'm really scratching the surface. For example, I, I love uh, this music from Uruguay called uh, Candombe, which I first heard when I went down to the jazz festival in Punta del Este. I went there about seven or eight times and I wrote a tune called Candombe in Blue. Mm. And uh, a fellow came up from Uruguay did a clinic at Berkeley, Daniel Tatita Gomez. And he talked about the different neighborhoods, the styles they play in the different neighborhoods. And I'm like, oh man, 
I know nothing about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> but but I mean that's 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 obviously with everything it takes time and you know I think that's another aspect of teaching that I will ask the question, do you think we're trying to teach people too fast? Because they think they're going into a school for three or four years and that's going to be it then they'll know everything and then we know that that was just the very beginning of our journey of learning stuff yeah i i totally agree i mean uh i would say we're teaching them what we can teach them in the time that they're there but that's just the beginning and i tell everybody that you know this is like a this is a path you should go out and go out and experience this music i mean it's a little it's a little different these days because maybe they're the whole gig situation is a little bit different. There's not as many places to play, but people still find a way to do it somehow. Mm. Mm. You know, they just they're just a little more savvy. Like you have snarky puppy with social media. You know, people find a way to do it somehow. Indeed. Well, I mean, that's another thing is I've just I've just written a little mini book for my Radio Richard thing. Uh, for my people, and it's just called How to Be an Employable Musician. Mm, and, that's good. and it's a cute little idea. But I mean, I, I find that w with all a lot of the young musicians that I meet and I do some teaching, and so I notice that they're not, they don't seem to be that concerned about actually what skills you need to just be employable. And, and I'm surprised that schools aren't teaching that that much. I mean, when I went to Berkeley, I, I had, you know, I was so lucky. I had the greatest teachers in the world, mm -hmm. but but uh, it was artistic. You know, the the whole focus of it was being was art, and uh, the only guy who kind of talked about being employable was Herb Pomeroy, who said, "Look, I'm giving you all these techniques, but man, you know, when you get into a working situation, you've got to." produce results right away. So you, that's why you need to know these 40 techniques, because you're going to use maybe 25 and, and 28 a lot right, to actually right. make a living and pay the rent. And oh, yeah. but, but apart from that, nobody ever talked about the employable stuff. I mean, do you talk to your students about that? Yeah, I do, because uh, my background was different than most people. Like I, I never went to college until uh, 2016, and I'd never even set foot in a college as a student until mm -hmm. September of this year, right? Because of this pandemic. Right. So my experience was, uh, you know, it was a little bit of an ego thing, I guess. I just wanted to play. I wanted to prove to people that I could play. I just wanted to get out there and play. Sure. And that's uh, hardly taking any lessons at all. And that was around, you know, 1980, something like that. Mm. And that's what I did. I went out and. I was on the Chicago scene. I just started, things started growing and started getting into recording and doing this and doing that. And finally hooked up with Fred Simon and Steve Rodby and then Lyle and Paul McCandless through Steve and various producers. But anyway, so I kind of just, you know, I like to tell my students, I've made all the mistakes so you don't have to. Right, right. Yeah. I use that one a lot too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I continue to do it. But what I like to do is I like to try to use students in a professional situation as much as possible. Like just today at Berkeley, there's an engineer that I worked with. He engineered my first, my debut record. 
and uh, sometimes he needs a band to come in for his recording class, and he's got access to the Shame Scoring Stage, which is the biggest nice. studio in New England. And so I said, okay, cool, yeah, I'll bring in a quintet, I'll bring in a quartet. And I started to get the idea, man, why don't I expand this to a big band? So I started doing big bands. I just call people, pay them, come in, bring a chart, you know, whatever. So today, uh, great Greg Hopkins, who might have been around when you were there too, who's a neighbor of mine, we co-led a big band and we recorded uh, an arrangement of ours, like one of his, one of mine. And I just started teaching an ensemble at New England Conservatory and I invited them to come and play. Mm. So they got to they got to be right in there. And it was the first session for the piano player. Her name is Kira Thibault. And she crushed it. It was right. the very first recording session. Like she just absolutely killed it. I mm -hmm. had a thing in the chart, like kind of like a, I don't know if you know that uh, the old George Russell stuff where Bill Evans is playing. I do. The band's playing stop time and he's playing this like one, one hand solo. I wrote that kind of thing for her and she just- nice completely killed it. So I love that. I love seeing them, you know, throw down, deliver. And uh, some people were from Berkeley, some people from NEC, some there were a few older people. And it was a really nice thing. So I like to, I love making that kind of stuff happen. And, um, and, you know, it's a challenge for me because I have to write the charts and print up the charts and not screw up the charts and uh it's a challenge for them because they sometimes i bring in really hard stuff yes of course you do so everybody kind of wins and you know i pay them out of my pocket it's not it's not huge bucks but you know well, there's a lot of musicians so it, it adds up yeah yeah it adds up but we'll we'll make it back in crypto i guess yeah 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 i have no <laughs> idea about that i'm, I'm just glad to say but yeah no i i i found running a big band for you know since well i started mine in sort of 1985 or something like that. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And uh, if you if you haven't, this is a big ad for Banzilla, but if you haven't heard Banzilla, oh, I think you better hear it. I'm it, definitely going to check it out. It's to the left of center, shall we say. All right. All yeah. right. I like it. Yeah, you will enjoy yeah. it. Did you write all the, the material? Yes, I did. I did a record called Slave to the Rhythm for Grace Jones. And on the record, I used it. Oh, eight, yeah. Yeah, it's it's that was, a, that was a big record. It was a number one worldwide kind of record. Man. Uh, but great. but when I did the chart for for that, it was an 85 piece orchestra with a big band in the center of it. And I had been doing some little big band stuff for years. But uh, one of the players in England, because I most of my career was in England, uh, a fellow called Guy Barker, who's quite a well known uh, British jazz kind of guy now. Uh, said to me, Rich, you've got to form a big band. Get, you know, let's do it. And I said, Well, you know, I'm in the studios all the time. I'm writing nonstop. I've, you know, got the, no time, and and I can't get gigs. You know, I. He said, Look, I'll get the gigs. You write the music. I said, Fine, okay. So wow. I did. I did, and he did, and so that's how the Banzilla thing was formed. And then we got a British TV show, which we were on for ten weeks, as kind of like the Johnny Carson band equivalent, wow. which was ridiculously fun and great, right? uh, and so i i've done but the thing the problem with a big band is that you have so many people to pay and you know sometimes they'll do stuff for free but i don't like that and uh and i'm sure you know that it's it's a lot of people you know and 
you know, I had the big band and I had singers and I had, you know, that's at one point I had dancers. So wow. yeah, <laughs> uh, it was fun. Yeah. But anyway, that's enough about me. I want to talk about you. <laughs> well, that's that's fascinating. I, th I think that's really great. And, and you know, I, I it's inspiring to me to, to do that. I mean, uh, we just we do this because we love it. You know, yes. It, it, yes, obviously, from a business standpoint, it's kind of ridiculous. Yes, but uh, but we just we just love creating things. We love you know the result, the end result. Like wow, we did it. You know, yes, yeah, I know. On to the next one. That's why we do it. It's that great yeah. feeling when you you know when you bring your arms down and you hear this. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's the last album. But um, going going back to to, um, I want to talk a little bit about the fact that you are so versatile, mm -hmm. and. Yeah, a lot of musicians have said to me over the years, it's kind of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, people want to typecast you. And in terms of the employable thing, they want to say, oh, he's that Latin guy. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's I remember when I when I spoke to Jeremy Lubbock, he said, oh, you know, somebody said, oh, he's a great string arranger. He said, I'm not a string arranger. I'm a composer. I do this. I do that. It's one of the things I do. Does that ever irk you or... You know, not really. I mean, I've, I've learned not to really be too concerned about it. Some people that hire me for sessions just think I play rock and pop. I mean, <laughs> get around to talking to Paquito and stuff like that. Sure. About Paquito. But uh, some people think I just play Brazilian music. And Brazilians have said, oh, man, you're Brazilian, you know. And some people think I just play jazz. You know, they, they just hire me for jazz gigs. And, right. you know, it's OK. Uh, Whatever they want to think, let them think that, you know, and uh, but in terms of stylistic diversity, uh, one of the very first bands I played with was run by a bass player from Chicago named Stephen Hashimoto, and he called it Mothra. Nice. And that was a cool band. I mean, it was really interesting music. He had all kinds of rhythms like he was the very first person to ask me, how's your Latin? I said. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, no, I'll go uh, ask her. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and there were all kinds of people from all over the place in the band, you know, very, very mixed bunch of people and mixed rhythm. As I thought all bands were like that, you know, yeah. and I and I wound up kind of gravitating toward situations like that. So even Paquito's gig, I mean, he's he's got people from Argentina, sometimes Brazil, sometimes U.S., sometimes like he had someone from uh, who was half Japanese, half Chinese. Nice. You know, he's got like all kinds of people in the band. And uh, it's fun. You know, I've always enjoyed playing a lot of different things. Sure. I mean, you know, yeah, I think I guess there's a trade off. Like if I, if I were only a jazz drummer, maybe I'd have a chance to get more into that language. But, you know, eventually I will. Yeah, but actually, I kind of consider it all to be jazz because ninety-five percent of the time we're making up our parts anyway. Yes, on, that's on true. The drums, so yeah. it, it's really you know, and the Stones talk about jazz, and the uh, Zach Starkey from the Who says it's a jazz gig, right? You know, and yeah. and you know, if you look at Led Zeppelin, you see them interacting like a jazz band. Sure, I mean it's yeah, you know. I yeah. mean, you know, there, there, there are plenty of there are plenty of gigs where the, you you play your parts and that's it. And that's mm -hmm. I've always kind of 
I've always kind of uh, gravitated away from that. That's why I never got into Broadway. I never wanted to get into Broadway. Right, right. If, if something if like a musical came up, I don't know if I'd wind up doing it, but I could I could do it and be happy because it's a very Zen kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that that would be the correct mindset. I, like, I guess it would, it would depend on the musical, too. Yeah, right, right. If it was West Side Story, you'd probably enjoy it. Sure, sure. Or, uh, you know, like, actually, a former student of mine um, is playing, it was the one who played In the Heights. Wow. Andres Ferrero. Right, nice. So, yeah, so, it, you know, it could be all kinds of things. I mean, there's a diversity again. There's a stylistic diversity again. Sure. But I still want to do my own thing because it's, you know, when you compose it, it's your baby. Of course. You know. Of course, yes. So. Well, let, let me ask you about something else. Um, in in terms of drumming, I know I'm not a drummer. I admit that fully, even though I'm plugging my book here, which I told you about, which you're going to be in hysterics when you see that one. Oh, That's, great. It's the funniest book about rhythm that you'll ever read. But anyway, Radio Richard, share, subscribe, even donate. I've noticed over the last five years or so, maybe longer, this thing about young drummers and what they're coming up with. And I'll start by telling a story briefly about a very fine British drummer called Neil Wilkinson, who years and years ago in the 80s used to have a, a jazz gig with this fantastic British jazz guitarist called Jim Mullen. And every once in a while on the gig, they were gigging like crazy. Every once in a while, he would just do this thing as a musical joke of displacing the beat by a 16th note. Mm -hmm. And it drove Jim crazy. <sighs> and, and, and eventually he had to stop doing it. But he'd do it every once in a while. And all the musicians in the, in the room would laugh hysterically. But, you know, he did it as a joke. Now, what I'm hearing today a lot from young drummers, and I'm talking about guys from 18 up, you know, who I hear playing around and whatever, is this thing, there's a, there's a, it's a sort of, I, I hate to describe it like this, but it is to me, it's kind of an anti-groove thing. It's a mm -hmm. thing of deliberately disrupting the, the groove. And there's this thing, have you heard about it? I'm sure you have, because you're a drummer, this drunk playing, do you know about this? It's called I haven't heard thing. I haven't heard that term. Okay. Well, but, the uh, drunk thing I've been told by drummers is playing as if you're drunk. The 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 beat is deliberately be way behind the not just behind the beat. It's way behind the beat. And yeah. it's kind of to me it's an anti-group. I don't know if you've heard any of this style that I'm talking about, but I wanted to ask you about it cuz I need to talk to a drummer about what it is. Well, does it have anything to do with those kind of uh, Dilla type beats? Yeah, it could. Yeah, it's it's the triplet against the non-triplet. They they've explained it that way to me that they're playing some part of the beat with a swing feel, and the other part is not against each other. Yeah, yeah. And that's a drum machine thing. I I think it comes from oh yeah drum programming. But totally. is that, I mean, do you, what, what's your thought about that? Well, you know, like, like all art forms seem to abstract at a certain point. 
I think that's what's happening with a lot of hip hop drumming because people are maybe getting a little tired of you know that's been done for such sure, a long time of so course. so now it's kind of opening up and getting more picasso like yes yeah so in a way that's really cool but uh it has to be done in the right way i think like if you're going to do that with everything except the bass and drum and the snare drum then you can't really move the bass drum and snare drum you have to move yeah. the stuff around it to create that drunkenness but that backbeat has to be right on the money yeah otherwise whatever what is everybody else going to play to exactly if they're, if they're exactly playing. and that's what i'm that's what i'm hearing i'm hearing the backbeat being this you know, either discarded or displaced mm -hmm. and and it's just an interesting development and and a kind of a fascinating all my life everybody's wanted to swing or wanted to groove or wanted to mm -hmm. make people dance but if you can dance to this you need to be in an, in an asylum or something because this is <laughs> you know when it gets going this is just it it's not chaos and that's the thing i find interesting about it it's deliberate right but but wow you know it's it's kind of yeah it, development it, it makes me wonder if they're if they've worked it out mathematically or if they're just feeling it generally because there's a lot of different polyrhythmic things you can do to to work sure. that out sure you know, and I see certain drummers doing that. And that could have some link to African polyrhythms. You know, yeah. the way the different drums would be superimposed on one of the talk about polymetrics. Yeah. yeah, maybe not even maybe not even with the subject same subdivision. But I hear that sometimes um, not quite in the same way, but in certain percussion from like uh, Gorka from Martinique and Guadeloupe. Uh, actually, there's a great example. There's a YouTube video. If you look up uh, Haitian Rara, R-A-R-A. Okay. There's a, there's a film of these kids blowing through these tubes. Yeah. Getting these kind of bass sounds. And then they cut to a different film where the kids are blowing through the tubes. And there's... Uh, oh, and they're also tapping out what this this rhythm called the sinkio, which is tick, 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 tick. They're, mm -hmm. they're abbreviating it like tick, 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 tick. I see. And the hand percussionist is playing. Like he's he's going between a 16th feel with that tick, 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 tick. And it all, oh, tick, and then it sounds like in the next second he's playing a straight five. Uh huh. So it's freaky the way that that works. Yeah. So there's little things like that that happen that like sort of in the cracks. But what I'm talking about with the guoca from Guadeloupe is that uh, sometimes you hear a solo percussionist play this djembe type instrument and they start playing a rhythm, and all of a sudden you're hearing it a different way. Like, oh, is that where one is or Wow. Wait a minute, is this in a completely different meter? It sounds like it's a kind of a polymeter. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. So I'd love uh, to hear that. Yeah. So there's a lot of percussion like that where you can hear it in different ways. So it's I mean, it's all polymetrics really. Okay, but, so my next provocative question Go for it. Is are drums too loud? 
Now, the reason I asked that question, let me give you the context of the question, then you can tell me I'm an idiot. Uh, uh, what I mean is, are they too loud for acoustic music? Okay. And the reason this I ask that is because w when I interviewed Chick Corea many years ago, he said that he wants to hear, when he plays acoustic piano, he wants to hear it acoustically, but he couldn't hear it acoustically unless he sets up the stage with the drummer right at the other side of the stage. And then, I guess, the horn players, and then the bass player next to him, and then him. But he didn't want, the because he couldn't hear the acoustic sound of his instruments. Now, over the years, drums have become louder and louder. I mean, if you think back to, I mean, the 30s, the 40s. And, and another little ec excerpt of this question is that uh, my friend Danny Gottlieb was asked to do uh, the Manhattan Transfer gig years and years ago. And when they asked him to do it, they said, but you have to play our kit. And they had a vintage kit that was much quieter. And they said, we can't sing over, over a regular drum kit, but we our drum kit is nice. And Danny said he loved it because he could play out more mm -hmm. and and he didn't have to be so timid, you know. So now I would love to hear your thoughts of it. Sure. Okay, so the, the answer to our drums too loud. No. <laughs> drummers drummers can be too loud, but drums aren't too loud. Okay. Uh, so I learned to play uh, softly from uh, people like Paquito, Andy Norell, and uh, Ralph Towner because they were playing these instruments that weren't cut, you know, Paquito's playing clarinet. Sure. Andy's playing steel pan. Ralph Towner's playing acoustic guitar with a microphone. Yes. So I had to figure out how to do that gig. So, uh, you know, there's two schools basically, like um, there's a school that you, you hit like you're playing in a stadium because that's what you're, you're going for, even if you're in a small room. And then there's the kind of, I guess you can say it's a more of the jazz way of bringing it down so you can hear all the instruments. Indeed. So uh, it just depends on which school. I mean, you know, uh, a lot of people in, in the church world, they get gobos put around them. And, uh, you know, and I've had that situation where I played really hard and had that put around me too. But when you walk in and they start putting it up before hearing you, that's what that's what I have a problem with. We're in a sense guilty until proven innocent. Yes, yes, you very know, I good. I have to ask, can we try these without and if there's any problem, we can put them back and usually they don't come back. Yeah, but I, I would say you were, I hate to say this because I love drummers deeply, mm -hmm. but I but I would say you're in the minority, guys like you and Danny Gottlieb, who are sensitive and uh, particularly melodic players and who are listening players, they're in the minority with, you know, just, I mean, the general rank and file of drummers across America. They don't, they're not taught to think like that. And I don't know if you ever talk to your students about that aspect of, you know, if you're doing something with somebody else, like playing music or playing tennis, you don't just hit uh, the ball over the net anywhere. You you playing with somebody else. Right. So well, you know, we're trying to teach everybody to play with dynamics. I mean, it's all about. Really, it all comes down to the height of the stick 
Yes. Like if I hit from here, it's going to be forte. If Indeed. I hit from here, it's going to be mezzo forte. Yes. If I hit from here, it's, you know, yeah. if I hit from here, it's going to be fortissimo. Yeah. And once they understand that, they, they realize, oh, I have control. Uh -huh. but, you know, some students still come in and they put the earplugs in and then they play really hard because I'm a metal drummer, they say. <coughs> right, and right. Okay, let's let's play Humpty Dumpty from Chick Corea, you know, and let's let's. Right. Let's bring the stick heights down. But, you know, that's why we but that's why we cover some classical repertoire on snare drum, because then right. they, they get a sense of having to play pianissimo or right or different dynamic things, you know, shading, embellishments, right. that kind of stuff, and hitting, you know, right. and hitting from high dynamic. Yeah, so, you know, I try to I try to drive that home because and I tell them all the stories about how I, like, one of the times uh, I came in with my earplugs, I was playing hard, and we were playing with Caribbean Jazz Project at the Blue Note, and right. Andy Norell, on the break, he just said, look, man, if you keep playing this loud, I'm going to have to pack up and go back to Oakland, you know? Right. I'm like, oh, oh, <laughs> okay, yeah. plugs out. Yeah. yeah. Let's start Let's start trying to control it. But but when and, I, uh, you know, when I've said that to drummers, you see, you, because you're a nice fellow, and, and because you're a, an, an artist, you said, oh, yeah, okay, I better change my behavior here, and that's the right thing to do. Whereas I have actually, over the years, uh, too many years to mention, often said to drummers it's just too loud i can't hear myself and they get really angry at me wow yeah yeah that's uh that's unfortunate i mean you know everybody has a different maturity date i guess yes you know, yeah, I, yeah i mean i can't i can't tell you that i wasn't that guy at some point well i'm sure you weren't you know but uh what yeah. do you think what do you think of of drums uh, either some people using vintage kits or, you know, these heads, I what I can't remember what they're made out of. They're, they're quieter heads. They're sort of to emulate the old older drums. Yeah. Um, well, you know, all the all the drums used to be outfitted with uh, with calf heads up yes. until the late 50s, early 60s. And then now it's been plastic. Yeah, you can get uh, you can get fiber skin heads, which are kind of you know approaching the sound of calf yes but i think uh i mean i still play all my drums open and i just try to control of this the volume you know with the with the proximity to the drum of course absolutely yeah that, that's it, the yeah that's the joe morello technique isn't it yeah that's I, taught. I told i tell a lot of students that i used to play a lot of weddings in chicago you know, back in the eighties, how will I know if he, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, all the, all the old repertoire, sure. I had to get people to dance because we wanted to go overtime and make more money. Good but, thinking. you know, at the same time, the grandmother of the bride sitting right next to my snare drum. So mm -hmm. how, what do I do? So what I did was I learned to try to play really close to the drum head, but get a really intense sound and set it up so that I play a rib shot and it sounds like somebody really hitting, but from 10 miles away. Uh -huh. And so they danced because the groove was intense and people could still talk. So that was, you know, that was a happy medium. Good. And there've been many gigs where I had to play quietly and uh, try to get an in, in, intense sound because if I, if I play with a wimpy sound with no life in it, yeah, sure. It, it just would be boring for me. It would be boring for them. It just wouldn't work. So, I always work on sound with people I'm teaching. 
So I work on the sweet spot of each instrument, you know, right. And actually a large part of what I teach is making them aware of what they're doing or not yes. doing. Yes. So if they're hitting the snare way over on the side really hard, they're going to get doink. Yeah. I said, do you know that if you hit it over here, you get that sound, you hit it over here, you get that sound. Now it's your choice. Or uh, if somebody's burying the beater in the bass drum, which is legitimate, so it's called a dead stroke. I say, okay, did you know that you can come off, boom, and get that resonant sound? Now, which one do you, would you like to play on right. this particular tune? Nice. And, you know, give them a choice. And did you know that if you're moving your hi-hat, if you're moving your left foot while you're playing your hi-hat, it's going to change the sound completely. Right. Now, let's see what happens when you leave that foot still. Now you have total control. Now, which one right. do you want to play? Right, right, you know, right. So they get to they get to decide, but they have they have a choice. Yeah, that's so I fantastic. Try to give a choice. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I always try to talk to people about how complex and sophisticated drummers actually are, because I think people, obviously, the general public, music music lovers, they think that drummers are just you know, being some kind of a gorilla jumping on the drums and hitting things. But there's so much that goes into it, which is why I've always been fascinated. I mean, when I was at Berkeley, I spent a lot of time transcribing drum grooves from different records of the time. And of course, there were some pretty hip records, but that's what I really enjoyed doing. And 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 even when I got out of Berkeley, I just still did it for fun, you know. To oh, that's great. this is what Harvey Mason is playing on this track. It's so great, and I transcribe things like you know, uh, Three Days of the Condor, Dave Grusin. What a fantastic drum part that is, you know. Wow. And but but it's yeah. the 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 amount of thought that went into that. And so then I thought it was normal to write parts like that for drummers, mm -hmm. and. I was surprised when I was starting out that, that I wrote these parts. And they said, oh, well, we're not used to getting parts that are this detailed. Right, and, right. And, you know, and I'd say to them, well, if it's, you know, if it's too, if it's too difficult to read her. And they say, no, no, it's just, it's just that we're not used to it. And just give me a moment. And, right. uh, and, they, and it turned out after a while they appreciated it mm -hmm. uh, because it was giving them some thought, some, some creativity to a part rather than just giving them slashes or, Boom chick, boom chick, you know? Right, yeah. It's a sort of a toss up. I mean, uh, you know, it's nice to have written out parts, but at the same time, it's nice to create your own parts. Oh, of course. You know, uh, it just depends on the artist. I mean, I've played, I've played on albums where everything was written out. And uh, it was kind of weird. You know, it was like playing a classical parts or something. Right. Whereas, you know, I like to create something that fits the song. And if they if they have an idea of the vibe, right, then we can we can talk about it. Like, I always ask the uh, songwriter for the lyrics, because I want to know what this means. Sure, sure. And then I can create a part based on that. Yes, from the beginning. I've always said, here's the part. Now, if you think of anything better, please play it. Because then it'll be better and I can take credit for it. Mm -hmm. exactly. <laughs> yeah, but that's the way I think about it. I'm happy that they change it, but I just yeah. want them to know, because I take a lot of time to think about that part and I care about it. So I want them to at least consider it. And I, of course I hire, if I've got, I mean, one of the guys who I've worked with for most of my life is Gary Husband. 
you know, I'm not oh, going to force wow. him to not to not, you know, be free to do what he wants. Sure. But but I certainly want him to have the option to do whatever he wants. But at the same time, you know, he enjoys looking at my parts and saying, oh, that's cool. I'll do that's kind of hip. OK, fine. So yeah. it's a nice it's a nice relationship. You know, that's good. That's good. Yeah, he's a great drummer. Oh. Amazing keyboard player, too. Yeah, he's just yeah. He, we can't even start talking about him. He's, <laughs> he's too much. He's too much. Yeah. One of the things I love about listening to your your playing is that you're very tonally you've got this wide tonal palette and you're always you're a very melodic drummer so I'd love you to demonstrate the melodic kind of quality of the drums. Sure, okay.
So there you go, a little night song. That is absolutely <laughs> beautiful, Mark. I really, really enjoyed that. The Artistry of Drums, Mr. Mark Walker, everybody. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for doing that. That's really great. great. Yeah. I wish I was your drum student. Uh, yeah, anytime. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you don't, you don't want to hear me play drums, no. Uh, <laughs> Mark Walker, thank you so much for being on Radio Richard. Okay, Mark, thanks so much, man. Right. Really, really thank enjoyable. Thank you. Yes, thanks so much. Bye -bye. I'll talk to you soon. Radio Richard is a unique collection of my interviews with fellow creators, revealing not only how they do that voodoo that they do so well, but why. So please, like, share, subscribe, and donate so I can keep this channel going and give you this great content. Radio Richard, be informed, be amazed, be inspired.